BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? Oh, wildly underslept. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's not It's not great. Um, just not, like, for some reason, the insomnia keeps going, and then once I finally fall asleep, it's just never long enough. Because then I'm awake and again, and I hate it. And the dreams are getting so insane that I don't know how to handle it. Just for example, uh, one from last night, I I had some roommates. Uh-huh. Uh, one of them in particular, Elizabeth Banks. Uh-huh. Um, I guess Cocaine Bear didn't do well. So she had to move in with me. I don't know. So uh, she... Uh, had a real concern about whether or not she should buy bananas for the fruit bowl. And I was like, I'll get in on a couple bananas. And she was like, oh, I don't know. But will our other roommate eat the bananas? We don't know. Who is our other roommate? Oh, it's fine. Just Nicolas Cage. And I just can't imagine that three's company situation of me, Elizabeth Banks, and Nicolas Cage sharing an abode, if I may. Sharing but I an promised abode. her... I would eat the bananas. Sharing an abode and a commode. I'm yeah, so sorry. Yeah, hopefully not at the same time. No. Um, was there anything else you remember uh, from it? No. I just remember her. And that's and that's the joke. We didn't actually see Nicolas Cage. She mentioned him. Mm. And I was like, oh, yeah. And I went, like, if Nick won't eat them, then I will. Nick. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to love. I'm just dream analyzing over here. Of course. Of course. So, of course. Without thinking about it, give me three adjectives that first come to your mind. Don't think about it. When you think of Elizabeth Banks, you think, oh, um, pretty funny, talented. Okay. And when you think Nicolas Cage, three adjectives, any off the top of your head. Oh, crazy, wild, insane. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be 100% so sorry, honest Nick. with you here. Of course. 
I think that this is a dream <laughs> about uh, about the dichotomy of you. Interesting. And I think that there is... Uh, I am way more Nick Cage than I am Elizabeth Banks. Well, well, but he was also not there. He was not there. And I think that that's, that's positive. What I oh. think... What I think is, is this This is you really connecting yeah. to that part of you that's Elizabeth sure. Banks. Because you were connecting. You were the two that were coming up with the plan. And it was like, yeah, we can do this. We can work together. Not a problem. And then he's just kind of there. Sure. You don't see sure. him. Right? I yeah. think that this is actually speaking to your internal growth. I think it's a very hey, positive dream. That's nice. Yeah. I mean, I felt it was a little out of nowhere to have seen or... So I seeing her and hearing Nicolas Cage or hearing of him, I was like, why would they be in my brain? Well, because there's so many things like if I scroll through Twitter, so many things about cocaine bear come up um, and Nicolas Cage. There's that that current meme of him and Pedro yeah. in the car. Um, and I saw that and I know I did when I was scrolling through my phone when I was really bored. And I know people are like, that's why you can't sleep. I'd been laying in bed awake for three hours. I was like, give yourself a treat. You're bored. So I scrolled for half an hour and then put the phone down. And I definitely, definitely saw that Nicolas Cage thing at least twice. So I was like, well, that makes sense. The night before, and listen, explain this one for me. Sure. I don't remember much of it. I just remember that somebody told me uh, that they bought a box of baseball cards Mm -hmm. And somehow there was a problem with them. And when they opened the box, they realized they were all the same rookie card of a player from the 90s. And they were like, oh, my God, I have every single one of this man's rookie cards. Do you want to guess? Like, <laughs> what? Like, first of all, let it be known. Um, <laughs> I've never been a huge fan of baseball. Like, I'll, I'll watch it. Yep. But like players, not a clue. Um I did say to my husband the other day, what's a baseball player? Uh, Owen Nolan? And then I was like, no, I think that's hockey. Nolan Ryan. That's one, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, this is, that is not who it was. <laughs> Mike Piazza. <laughs> is he a baseball player? Yep. I don't know him. Oh, I think from, he played from like 92 to 07 or something. Like I had to, like I woke, I woke up and went, what? How is he in my brain somewhere? Which I would like to have a talk with the people upstairs. Well, like, listen. To tell them what can get cleared out and what can't. Mike Piazza absolutely can. No shade to the gentleman. There is a, there is a, a theory that dreams are our brains defragging like a computer. So it, it, okay. is, it is picking the information that you don't need sure. and deleting it essentially. But what's ironic is, is that we remember it. That is, that is one mm -hmm. school of thought. However, one could then argue, but why would your subconscious choose those specific things at that specific time? Is sure. there potentially a greater meaning to that? Is your subconscious communicating a greater meaning? And that's sure. what I find interesting. Mike Piazza, again, as a baseball fan, I don't even remember Mike Piazza. So, and that's not to say he wasn't a I, great player. Well, I forgot he existed. No offense, sir. But again, not my sport. But I forgot he existed until that moment. And I swear to God, in the dream, I was kind of like looking at myself 
out of body sort of thing. And I mm-hmm. swear to God, I like did a camera reference where I was like, really? Mike Piazza? Like when you see him, you'll be like, oh, I've seen him. Yeah. But like. I mean, the name sounds familiar to me. Of course. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. But like, why? I don't know. Somebody I know had every single one of his rookie cards and it was, they didn't know what to do. And I was like, I don't know what to tell you, but I was like, oh, I'm dreaming. Mike Piazza, I'm dreaming. Elizabeth Banks and Bananas, I did not know. Mike Piazza rookie cards, that was my moment. I was like, oh, I'm dreaming. Well, at least I'm asleep. This is stupid. (laughs) But Elizabeth Banks talking bananas, I was like, I'll absolutely have one in the morning, Lizzie. I promise. Lizzie. (laughs) Now, I don't, I'm going to be honest with you. Are you a banana fan? I don't feel like I've ever heard you talk about eating a banana in 40 years. <laughs> I've, I have eaten bananas. I will. But I'm very particular about, about how banana About the ripeness? Yes. Like, I am feral enough that my family will not touch them at the point that I'll eat them. And once I won't eat them anymore, then they consider them safe to eat. So you like it as close to green as possible? Uh, Yeah, I would like it to – it can't be too green or then there's no flavor. It it has to be like but a scotch green to it. This is giving far more context for the dream analysis. I can't stand a mushy banana. Got it. Even a little bit. I can't stand it. So the bananas Mm -hmm. are something that you're very particular about. I am. And Elizabeth Banks was saying, I don't know, should we do this, should we not? And you made a definitive call, which was, hey, I'll eat him if he doesn't. No problem. I just assumed that was my people pleaser. I don't think so. Because because to me, what it's saying is, is that you were making a definitive choice about something that you're very particular about. Yeah. You were definitive. You said, yeah, no, get them. I'll do them. I'll I'll eat them. No problem. That to me is, is... is actually the opposite of people-pleasing, that you were just like, yeah, no, I've made the call. And because it was something that you're so particular about, that says to me, perhaps, um, you didn't know what those bananas were going to look like, but you were trusting that it's like, I can, I can, I can, I can (laughs) achieve this task. Mm -hmm. I am confident in my abilities to achieve this task. That's how I would interpret that. Oh, that's so much nicer. Then my, oh, people pleaser, she's going to eat 80 bananas because we know Nick Cage won't. Well, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't think, I mean, you, that's, you, I think you've, you've, you've uh, connected a few dots there that maybe weren't. I don't know that, that, that she was buying a, like bushels of bananas. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, don't I, I don't know, but uh, look, the next time we're in the same space, I'll eat a banana. There's no pressure to eat a banana in front of me. I I trust you. Next, I, okay. next, your time, next time we are together, if I will point out, if given the opportunity, the uh, perfect banana in my mind. If if we're around ban- bananas, I will be like, that's the shade. Yeah. Well, spoiler alert. I also yeah. like I like as close to green as possible. I like a harder banana. I like a harder banana. Also, it slices better if you're slicing it. Yep. But I no. will also say, um, while I will eat a banana, get it the fuck out of my smoothie. Wow. Yes. I don't, I don't, 
I'll eat a banana, but I'd rather not have banana flavor in anything. <laughs> what are you putting? First of all, you drink smoothies. What are you putting in the smoothies? <laughs> oh, I haven't had a smoothie in years. I keep saying I would like, uh, I would like a better blender, and that has been my goal for years. Um, for the sake of being able to make smoothies, but if I could just put strawberries and peaches, not to quote my roommate or anything, but I could eat a peach for hours. <laughs> to quote your roommate. I love this. I love this. <laughs> just know that that's the idea that I'm, that <laughs> in my brain, I live with Nicolas Cage. I live with Nicolas Cage from Face Off after the Face Off part. Right. Like when he's well, just but full again, off the edge. Just just to make it clear with my analysis, I love that I won't let it go. It's that <laughs> it's that each of them represent a part of a side of you. So again, oh, you're not yeah. people pleasing. You're saying that it's like, I got it handled. If the crazy sure. side of me decides they don't want to do this thing that's very particular, yeah. I got it. I got this. Yeah. No problem, Lizzie. Lizzie. Lizzie and Nick. Lizzie, again, Nick and Lizzie, Nick and Chris. Yeah. Again, the Mike Piazza dream is a little bit more hard for me to unravel. I think um, that one's there's a deeper meaning mm -hmm. there that mm -hmm. I think we could probably get to but with enough talk therapy between the two of us, which I look forward to doing because uh, we will, dear listeners. We oh, will. of course we will. Um, yeah. But line. again, to me, all positive. All oh, that's positive. nice. Yeah. That's nice. And again, no shade to Mr. Piazza. No. Apparently, you struck a chord because you're you're in there deep. Well, he to the point you pulled me out of, of my dream and made me go, what? I had oh, one of those recently real. where I got pulled out and I was like, oh, but see what I do in those moments. This really speaks to me. You go, mm -hmm. oh, thank God. This means I'm asleep. I go, I can do anything now. And then oh, I like try to fly nice. and stuff. That's nice. Oh, I like that for you. That says a lot about you. Yeah. And that's classic Ash. Yeah. Got to make that the best like, of it, baby. I can, do, I can do anything? Amazing. Yeah. Whereas I'm like, oh, don't wake her. Just leave her. <laughs> yeah, I'll hang out with Mike Piazza and all these rookie cards if I have to. Well, that's the joke. Mike Piazza wasn't even there. I didn't even have to see the card. I could he see it in my brain. Like, I was immediately like, I know exactly what Mike Piazza looks like. Haven't thought of him since mid-90s, at best. No offense again, sir. But, Jesus. Wow. It's just, I will never get when it's like, that was a deep cut brain. All right. Yeah. Well, again, there can be larger reasons for that, which, which again, we, got, we don't have the time until we start our uh, adjacent dream analysis podcast. But I don't need to tell oh. you, we can't be adding more podcasts. Oh, God, we're um, up to at least 10 by now. At least yeah. At least. I like I like that there's a headline that just says, what happened to Mike Piazza? <laughs> he lives in Italy. No He kidding. coaches the Italian national baseball team. This is information as of January 4th of 2023. No shit. Yeah. Wow. He went back to the homeland, you know? Please don't <laughs> come for me. I'm not trying. I wasn't trying to do. Can we do Italian accents? Is that? A thing? Are we not allowed to do them anymore? I don't know what's allowed anymore. Oh, I, I don't <clears throat> think anything's allowed. I think I'm going to get shit on for Mike Piazza somehow. Um, God, 
<laughs> You'll love oh this. my God. There's what? so much Mike Piazza news. See, Are you kidding? Is, no. He is on um he's gonna be on a new reality show. This was a this was again, this was announced this year. Huh. And I have heard about this show. It is, I'm trying to find the name of it. Oh, it's called Special Forces, World's Toughest Test. It's it's a Fox series. It's also starring um, oh, uh, Dr. Uh, Drew. Didn't Britney's uh, bitch of a sister do it? Jamie Lynn Spears. I stand by it. I love it. I mean, I'm all for it. Anthony Scaramucci. What a what a motley crew. But anyway, who knew? That's Mike weird. Piazza says nothing can prepare you for the special forces. Well, there you go. What I like is that my subconscious is more in tune with pop culture with things than I am. See, that's that says something to me though. That's there's a lot of power in that subconscious. You know what I mean? You just got to harness that's it. That's nice. That's nice. Well, yeah. I just Maybe need I'll a couple look into of bananas. You, I'm going to look into getting you a Mike Piazza rookie card at some point. <laughs> for your wall, for your for your treasures, to keep in your for treasures. For my treasures. <laughs> for my grotto. Of course. For your grotto. Yeah. Look at this look stuff. Look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? Of course. Yeah. I love that you went to sing it and me, the person who sings on this show constantly, <laughs> got shy. Got shy. I mean, in your defense, uh, you're unwell. I've been sick for, for 85 years. Like, I just feel like <laughs> it's not, yeah. it's not, look, I'm on the upswing now, certainly, but I think it was when my doctor said something along the lines of like, oh God, <laughs> like, it's like he, he reacted ah. in a way that was, that was just true. chilling. Yeah. Yeah. He was chilled to his core. It's because I have so many things at the same time, like so many different viruses oh, at the same time. God. And then my quote to him was, do I need to worry th- about that? And he was like, you've been traveling. You've been on planes. You've been, you, you're run down. No, you don't have to worry. If you've been quarantining in your house and getting all these viruses, we'd have a different conversation. And I was like, that makes me feel somewhat better, I guess. I'm in love with your doctor just based on this. And the you way know, he talks, I like He's a, a good man. He's a That's good man. Nice. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. 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 Um. And this is a spe- this is an ear, nose, and throat specifically, doctor. I'm sure. not messing around when I get sick. Of you know course. what I'm saying? Yeah. Of course. Uh, I also, you know, I have. They call them primary care doctors here. That's like a family doctor. Of back course. Home. Of course. I have one. I don't love her. <laughs> I don't love her. I hope she doesn't yeah. listen to this. I know it just means find a new one, which is more than. I'm more than capable of doing it's it's just every time I think this is something you should t- go to your doctor about I go mm. <laughs> just don't oh. love her wow I hope she doesn't okay. listen and I and, and you know what no if you do listen doc here's what I'm gonna say <laughs> yeah bedside manner oh boy mm. not great okay not great I think the quote for yeah. me was so you're an actor have you ever actually done anything you got paid for that was where she probably lost me. I was oh. like, you're asking an actor that in L.A.? <laughs> like, do you not have any other actor patients? Wow. And listen, whatever. I just don't think that you should say that. This isn't my ego, by the way. I just don't think you should say that to anybody. I think that's a mean no, thing to say. It's not a nice way of asking a simple question. 
No. Just like, because there's also have, the, the typical, have you done anything I've seen, which, which I'm is sure what, you hate hearing, but seems typical to say as opposed to, did you do anything that you actually got paid, got paid for? for? It was that. where That's when it started. That's when she started to lose me. And then I was like, you know, yeah. maybe she's still a good doctor. Um, and listen, it's not that she's a bad doctor. Absolutely not. Um, it's just, again, there's been times where I've gone in with a concern and, and I felt very brushed off. And that's very oh, triggering I, to me. I, I don't I care for that. went through that for years with my PCOS and doctors just telling you you're wrong and that you're crazy. Literally, that you're crazy. Um, mm -hmm. I had a doctor once say to me, that's not possible when I describe my symptoms. And I was like, well... It is. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I guess what it is for me is that it's like, why would we lie to you, medical professionals, especially in the United States, where it's not free to see a doctor, it's sure can be hellish to even get in. Why would I come yeah. in and lie to you? What do I get out of, out of that much time and money? Yeah. You know what I'd like to do today? I'd like to pay $500 to go and tell a lie to somebody. Like, that's... You can lie for free. You know what I mean? Like pick, a, pick anyone else. Yep. Pick anyone else. Now, this, yeah. this being said, I have amazing doctors too. I am not painting with one brush. I sure. My doctor that I see for my PCOS now is an angel human. Um, wonderful doctor. Shout out, Dr. Mercy. I feel like she deserves a shout out. She That's does amazing nice. work. I love her. Um, the best bedside manner. The kindest human. Um, That's nice. And just listens. She's the one that really got me on the right track with my PCOS. I owe all of the progress I've made to her because she just listened and was like, "You're, yeah, that's what you're describing nice. is actually um, common. So anyway, that's a long rant to say, I see you. Anyone who's who's been to a doctor that's told them that they were wrong or it's not true, I see you. It's the worst. Yes. It's the worst. Yes. And, and boo to anybody that makes a comment about anything in regards to like, oh, did you actually get paid for it? Yeah, what I like wanted to that say was attitude. Was like, I don't care for. So you're a doctor. Were you the top of your class? <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? like what you get on the SATs, lady. Yeah. yeah. What's what was your what was your score? Because um, we don't higher say than Jesse Spano or just over Zach Morris. <laughs> We'd like to know. <laughs> there's just no other other than the arts. I don't yeah. know that there's any other profession. Where no. you would ever say that to someone. Nope. Other than a creative job. There's no other profession in the world. You don't say to a baker, well, hey, you actually get paid for that cake? Like, you don't say to a banker, like, do you get paid for your job? Um, yeah. Yeah. I just think it's too bad. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I can say that now as someone who's had these things said to me. Exactly. I, a creative profession. Exactly. I want to remind yeah. you, was it last week that... As right before we started, I said, let's go do our art. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's the truth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, there is definitely, um, I'm, I'm going to use the word stigma. Yeah. Uh, when people are speaking to people from a creative standpoint. Yes. Uh, something similar. Uh, I won't name names, but uh, when we won uh, the first awards for this show. Yes. That we won. In a series of awards <laughs> that we have won since. But yes. when we won the first ones, I had someone who knows me personally say, uh, but are they real? To which someone else who was in the room responded, no, it's just some online thing. Oh. So, uh, yeah. 
those things aren't nice. (laughs) Well, they're not nice to hear. They're not nice to hear. And that's also so silly because arguably any awards are online now. Like the Emmys get voted for online. Sure. You know, SAG Awards. For some reason, uh, what was really the sticking point for them was do you get like a physical award or not? And it's like, but but we still earned something. Well, whether you have like a physical award, which we do have some physical ones. We do. But then we also have some that are just a title. Yes. But but you know what's interesting about that is that it yeah. connects in the same way to the money comments, right? Because it's what it's suggesting is, is that these people define success as yep. having something tangible in response. So sure. if you're not getting money or you're not getting a physical award statue, then you don't actually have success. And I think that yep. the definition of success, I don't believe anywhere states either of those things. And I think nope. that also I would encourage people to open your purview to what success means. I think that success can be measured um, in so many different ways. And that's so individual and important because if we were all going by the same, you know, uh, system, then the Jeffrey, then everyone would love Jeffrey Bezos. Then everyone would say that is the pinnacle of success because he has so much money. But I don't need to tell you that it's like, A, not everybody views the world that way. B, I don't know that he's got a lot of fans. Um, Certainly not for that reason. And C, it's like, right, but what does what does he bring the world other than, you know, a shopping system that many people enjoy using? But but in terms of like sure. enrichment, enrichment, um, I would oh. view success as being like, did I do something that that made someone happy in some way? That's very that that makes me rich in success to me. And I think that yes. uh, the concept that you need to be getting getting something that you can physically show as being the marker of success is very flawed. And also like an antiquated notion. Yes. Look, I would say that Jeff Bezos's, and I'm forgive me because I can't remember her name, uh, ex-wife is more successful than he is with the amount that she, she has a lot of money, but God, she does good things with it. She absolutely does. And I think that that's the other thing too. I think that when we talk about success with, you know, a human being being successful, why are we only talking about money? To me, it's like there's a million things that I make me a successful adult human that have absolutely yeah. nothing to do with my job. It has absolutely nothing to do with the money I make. I think that I am a successful human because of the way I treat people, because of the yes. way I view the world, because of how I value philanthropy and uh, using the platform that I have to try and raise awareness about things that are important to me. Those are the things that make me a successful person, in my opinion, um, yes. far more so than anything else. But again, I think that it's it's really about unraveling what that societal kind of um, belief system has been for so long. Yes. God, what a ride we are. Every week, I know we say that a lot, but like dream analysis, Yep. real talk about, yep. you know, taking a look within, like yep. Yep. just all over the place, but somehow just purely organic, like bananas. I tried to bring it back. It didn't work. It was, oh no, it was beautiful. (laughs) It was beautiful. But that is the magic that we bring to the table. The other magic we bring 
is the true crime research. Um, hey Dear listeners, this episode we're talking about Jack Royal. This, of course, was the January patrons poll winner. Um, we're over on Patreon, patreon.com slash Cocktails, where you too can take part in voting in these polls if you become a subscriber. Uh, you can vote on one of the cases we cover on this feed of the show per month, so check that out if you're interested. Now, I don't know anything about this case, but guess what? Christy's written a handy synopsis to help get us up to speed that I look forward to reading now. In March 1990, retired teacher Jack Royal was murdered at his front door. When police started looking for suspects, they learned that Jack was connected to a murder that occurred just three years earlier. So was that first murder a catalyst for Jack's death, or are the two cases completely unconnected? Well, just like New York's hottest nightclub, this episode has everything. Bonus true crime cases, a serial killer, five guys named Mark, and a search for the truth. Now, hold on. What nightclub has true crime cases, a serial killer, five guys named Mark, and a search for the truth? Because I'm going to say it, I'm booking a flight tomorrow. Oh, I I guarantee, like, tell me Stefan would not go to a club just because there was true crime. (laughs) I mean, I want, okay, full disclosure, listeners. Christy said to me ahead ahead of this, she was like, I've gone somewhere in that synopsis. (laughs) And as is always my my prerogative, I never read it before I read it on the show, ever. Of course. Um, Just because I like, again, the organicness, the uh, reading it in the moment. Not in my wildest dreams. Did I see that uh, that analogy coming? Yeah. Just like New York's hottest nightclub, this episode has everything. Is there a nightclub that you've heard has has everything? I've just never heard that expression. Like I I like it feels like it's a it's a Christy special. The, that has everything? Yeah. Well, that's Stefan. Oh. Oh, see, I didn't realize that. Yeah, Stefan. I thought you were a genius. <laughs> Oh, no. No, uh, Stefan, uh, a.k.a. Bill Hader, on Saturday Night Live. Yes. Uh, it was always New York's hottest club, and then he'd make a, say a name like Boof with nine right. O's. Um, and then it would always like, well, this club has everything. And then he would list the most ridiculous things that I loved so much. The thing is, I this this case was kind of a bear uh, yeah, to research. Sure. And uh, it was just not, it was finding far too much information about one thing, but right. no information about everything else. So it was very frustrating. And so that was written at the end where I was I like, I need it. to, I need to finish it up and put an end to it. I guess I just never watched enough of that era of SNL for whatever reason. I know you love sure. that character. I just feel like I, I do. Just, yeah, I do. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. I was like, how am I finishing off this synopsis? I'm like, oh, God, there are a lot of guys named Mark in this. Well, I'm adding that. I've lost it. It's a stroke of genius. Never never doubt yourself. I've lost my mind. I've gone to another place. I love it. I love to see that for us. Well, hey, and look at this today. No disclaimer. Wait a second. This may be a true crime and cocktail first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. All right. Does it involve two murders? It does. No disclaimers. Huh. If I have to start doing a disclaimer because there's murder? 
Well, that's no, no, no. I think that that one we all so understand. I've, uh, yes. Yeah, I've let it go, but I there. I don't think there's anything overly graphic. Wonderful. So, uh, not saying it's gonna be like nice, no, and gentle, but I mean. We do often get told people like to listen to us when they fall asleep. Right. But that's more our tones. Yeah. Our soothing, soothing tones. Tones of home. Blind melon. <laughs> now the singing's come in. Didn't feel comfortable with Ariel. But Shannon, you're okay with. Shout out Shannon Hoon. May he rest. An angel. Yeah. An angel. I like, we've re referenced Shannon Hoon recently, haven't we? We did. I believe we when did, When we talked yeah. about your birthday? <clears throat> Is I think that so. Uh, I think we were talking about musical crushes. Oh. There's a picture that circulated the internet recently of Shannon Hoon, like, koalaing on to Chris Farley, and it oh, yeah. touched me in such a way that I, I ordered a print of, I have it framed in my home now. I don't know why. I was just like, it broke my heart in such a beautiful way. I was like, I need this sure. permanently. Too taken you were moved. just too soon. Just so too soon. The both of them. Both yes. bright lights. Yeah. Very sad. Yes. Oh God. Again, just when you think we're done going on a wild swing. We're not. Nope. We're not. Never never could be. Never would be. Oh, absolutely not. All right. So Alfred John Royal, known as Jack was born in July 1931. Alfred married Sonia Wiffen in September 1954, and the couple had two sons, Paul in December 1958, and Nigel in December 1961. On Monday, March 19, 1990, Jack and Sonia were watching TV at their home at 44 Laburnum Grove, Sunnyside, Gateshead. At 11.35 p.m., the doorbell rang, so Jack went to the front door, and when he looked through the porch window, Jack was shot once with a shotgun in the face. Oh, my God. He died almost instantly. Jack Royal was 58 years old and a retired science teacher. According to a witness, after the shooting, the suspect ran towards a white Austin Montego, but the vehicle had been stolen from the Metro Park Hotel earlier that day. A few hours after Jack's murder, the vehicle was found on fire at St. Mary's Green parking lot about a mile away from the scene of the crime. As police searched for Jack's killer, they realized Jack's killing may have been revenge for the crime that was committed years before. Because on, on January 10th, 1987, Jack got into a fight with David Thompson outside a Chinese restaurant in Newcastle. David was a scrap dealer and also the business partner of Jack's 29-year-old son, Paul. David and Paul had a falling out over their joint scrap metal business that had failed. David allegedly taunted and threatened Jack. Jack and David then argued, and at some point, a penknife came out, and David was stabbed 17 times. Wow! David Thompson was 29 years old and a father of three. Jack was charged with David's murder and stood trial in November 1987. Jack claimed that it was self-defense and the jury was unable to reach a verdict. A second trial was done and Jack was acquitted on March 10, 1988. 
After the second trial, Jack started to receive phone calls at home, threatening him and his family. The calls continued until Jack's death two years later. Neighbors said that Jack and Sonia lived in constant fear and that Jack rarely left his house alone, which caused him to retire from teaching. During Jack's murder, his neighbor, 18-year-old Paul Martin, ran from his house at the sound of the gunshot. He told police, and this is a quote, Sonia was holding Jack in her arms, weeping, don't leave me, Jack, but I think he was probably already dead. He was lying on his side, and although I couldn't see any injuries, there was blood and glass everywhere. Another neighbor, Beverly Yeadon, saw the suspect fleeing the scene. Beverly looked through a series of 55 mugshots and picked out the man that she believes she saw on that night. Beverly also picked that same man out of a police lineup, or identification parade, as they call it in the UK. The man Beverly saw was 19-year-old Walter William Heppel. Walter lived near St. Mary's Green parking lot, where the burned-out getaway car was found. And when Walter was interviewed by police, they learned that Walter was the brother of Wendy Heppel, who was David Thompson's common-law partner and the mother of his children. Interesting. David Thompson, of course, being the man who was killed in the altercation with Jack Royal in 1987. Walter was arrested on April 9th, and while on remand in jail, Walter allegedly confessed to Jack's murder to a fellow prisoner. Police spent 10 months making a case against Walter before he was put on trial for the murder of Jack Royal. Beverly testified at the trial, placing Walter at the scene, saying, quote, he was definitely the driver. I had seen that face that night. But the defense team argued that Beverly was simply remembering Walter because she'd seen his photo in the mugshots, and not because he was there that night. And somehow that defense actually worked. What? And at the end of a three-week trial, Walter was acquitted on June 26, 1991. Police struggled to find another suspect. In early May 1992, police arrested Andrew Adams and his roommate, Kevin Thompson, for an armed robbery at a Presto supermarket. Andrew had an alibi and was quickly released. But a witness picked Kevin out of a police lineup and he was charged. However, Kevin was eventually released. Police soon arrested local thief Mark Dixon for the Presto robbery. And while searching Mark's home, they found a shotgun. Forensic tests on the shotgun showed that one of the gun's inner components rubbed against shells when they were loaded, causing scratches on the cartridges. And those looked very similar to the spent shotgun shell that was found at the Jack Royal crime scene. The scratches weren't exact, but a forensic scientist said that it was possible the shotgun could have been used to kill Jack Royal. Police questioned Mark about Jack's murder, but he denied having any involvement or any knowledge of the crime. And I'll admit, researching this case was a struggle, not only because there is very little information about either of the two murders involved in this case, but also because some of the suspects' names are incredibly common in the UK. Right. And you know I love to give a background, and I love to give, like, where are they now type updates, but multiple men with the same name who also committed crimes 
makes getting a background very difficult. For example, I tried looking up Mark Dixon, and I found five Mark Dixons with criminal backgrounds in the UK. (laughs) Right, right, right. One Mark, who was born in 19, around, sorry, 1967, attacked his ex-wife Allison in September 2004. Uh... It involved punching, kicking, jabbing a knife into her neck, and pouring boiling water on her while she was holding their two-year-old. Oh, my God. Allison thankfully survived the attack, and Mark was sentenced to five years. Which doesn't seem like very much, but... No. Then in January 2011, while working as a builder, Mark and two other men scammed homeowners out of nearly a million pounds. Same Mark. As far as I can tell. Because this is this is the bitch of it. I there were so many crimes with someone named Mark Dixon. I had to go based off of the year they were born and the age to try and figure out like only a handful would be like, he's from here. And I was like, great. Then I know it's the same guy. It was uh, it was not easy. But yeah, uh, Mark and the builders collected as much money as possible up front and then just took off before finishing the job, all three were found guilty of conspiracy to defraud. In March 2020, Mark got into a fight with a female staff member at a Greg's in Lake District. Five months earlier, Mark was arrested for getting aggressive with a metro inspector who had asked Mark if he had a ticket while riding public transportation. Then there was a second Mark Dixon, born around 1984, In October 2012, he was convicted of crimes against children, sentenced to a minimum of six years. In 1999, he'd been imprisoned for 21 months following another crime against children. A third Mark Dixon uh, was given a five-year antisocial behavior order, which is also known as an ASBO, in January 2013, and he was banned from every railway station or train in England and Scotland. An ASBO is a civil order that police use in the case of repeat offenders. Mark was sent to jail in November 2012 after stealing a bag while on a train. He was also charged with assaulting a police constable and being drunk and disorderly. And then there's a fourth Mark Dixon, born around 1988. He was one of three Irish men acquitted of attempted murder while on a trip to Melbourne, Australia in 2019. And I apologize. I did say Melbourne. I should have just said Melbourne. Either way. I'm not from there, which is why I would say Melbourne. Not the point. Point is, the victim was a realtor named Saeed Morgan, who went by Sid. He was shot in the head, but he managed to survive. Sid and one of the three accused got into an argument over some sort of business deal He was shot once in the head with his own gun, and the three accused claimed self-defense. They were finally able to return to Ireland in August 2021. But Sid was no stranger to violence. Before becoming a real estate agent in 1997, he was a member of the New South Wales Police Force. Interesting. In 1995, Sid's brother-in-law, Mansour Suha, was charged with sex offenses against three children, two of which were relatives. Upon hearing the news, Sid used his service revolver and emptied it into his brother-in-law six times in the head. Wow. In August 1997, Sid was cleared of any wrongdoing 
as the jury found Sid didn't act out of revenge, but rather out of fear for the safety of children. That's still not legal. Yep. Uh, (laughs) Despite being acquitted, the New South Wales police refused to reinstate Sid, so he went into the realty business. Wow. But the fifth mark, from best I can tell, the one connected to the Jack Royal case, was born in Sunderland in 1977. In April 2017, this Mark stole seven bottles of alcohol from a bar called The Botanist. Police believe Mark used a fire exit to get into the building while the cleaners were working. The alcohol, which included Jack Daniels, cognac, bourbon, gin, and tequila, was said to be worth over a thousand pounds, which the bar owners said does not include the profits the bar would have made off that alcohol. Right. Mark was ordered to pay compensation of 700 pounds, which he was supposed to pay in $5 weekly installments after his release from prison in July 2018. But just four days after he was released from prison, he broke the window of an apartment above a pub called The Establishment. He entered the apartment and stole a laptop and $345 cash. Mark pleaded guilty and was sent back to prison for 21 months. At the time, Mark Dixon had 85 past convictions for 198 offenses. Wow. It's a lot. So police arrested Mark Dixon for the Presto robbery and found a shotgun in his home that they claimed might be the murder weapon from the Jack Royal case. Well, Mark Dixon was friends with Kevin Thompson, who was a school friend and former roommate of Andrew Adams the first two men who were arrested for that Presto robbery. Now, before I get into Andrew Adams, not unlike my issues researching Mark Dixon, turns out Kevin Thompson is also a common name in the UK. From the best I can tell, that Kevin Thompson was not the same Kevin Thompson who in April 2008 was caught stealing money from his mother and his girlfriends. While serving three years for a previous con, Kevin befriended a prison guard, or warder, named Lauren Cooper. After his release in 2004, Kevin introduced Lauren to his mother, Christine. In February 2005, Kevin told his mother that Lauren had collapsed and she needed money for an emergency operation. Then on Mother's Day, Kevin told his mother that Lauren died while on a trip to Spain and he needed money to fly her body home. Oh, my God. Between February 2005 and August 2006, Kevin's mother gave him over 64,000 pounds. At some point in 2005, Kevin met Tracy Chant through a Lonely Hearts ad. They moved in together in December 2005, and he told Tracy he needed money for lawyers and convinced Tracy to give him signed blank checks. Kevin took about 6,800 pounds from Tracy and then left her for a woman named Gail Wills. Kevin borrowed 27,000 pounds from Gail after telling her his business was going under. Just to be clear, Lauren did not collapse or die. I just want to make sure that's very clear. Uh, Thankfully, the women caught on to Kevin's games, and he was eventually arrested. He pleaded guilty to four counts of deception and was sentenced to five years. But again, to the best of my knowledge, That is not the Kevin Thompson connected to the Jack Royal story. 
I only bring up these other unrelated cases to point out the difficulty that researching could sometimes be, but also to add some extra true crime. Yes, because why not? Now, the Kevin Thompson in the Jack Royal case is the one we are going to talk about, and I want to be clear from the start. Kevin is in no way related to David Thompson, the victim from 1987. Okay. It's just, Thompson apparently is very common, but the Kevin Thompson in question was connected to a home invasion on April 6, 1992 in Consett, County Durham, Henry and Mary Thomas, both in their 70s, were tied up after a group of men entered their home. Henry suffered a heart attack during the robbery, but from what I can tell, he did survive. The men took various antiques worth approximately 15,000 pounds from the couple's home. Two hours later, police found most of those antiques, as well as the shotgun that was used to threaten the couple, at the home of Kevin Thompson. Also found at the home was the Vauxhall Cavalier that was seen driving during the robbery. Kevin matched Mary Thomas's description of one of the assailants, as well as a description provided by one of Thomas's neighbors. Police did a photo lineup, but no witness was able to pick any of the suspects out from the photos. When interviewed, Kevin claimed his only role in the robbery was to sell off the stolen antiques. Kevin was charged with robbery, the average sentence of which is like 10 to 15 years. On April 10th, 1992, Kevin's solicitor, Karen Graham, suggested that Kevin would name his accomplices in the concert home invasion in exchange for a lighter sentence. Detectives chose not to take Kevin up on his offer, but the next day, the detectives approached Kevin and asked about the murder of Jack Royal. The details of that conversation are not fully known, but just 22 days after Kevin was first arrested, two police officers went to a judge who was presiding over Kevin's case and told, the, uh, told him Kevin was providing valuable assistance in the Jack Royal case. As a result, the robbery charge was dropped and Kevin pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of handling. In June 1992, Kevin was given a suspended sentence and released. And what information did Kevin Thompson have about the Jack Royal murder? Well, according to Kevin, he claimed to know who Jack's killer was. His friend and former roommate, Andrew Adams. Ah. Who I will get into after the break. Well, 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 you heard the lady. It's time for break number one. Hope you're having some fun. Out in the sun, no one wants to take charge of this gun. I'm so sorry. Get a drink, hit the can, and we'll be back with more in the Jack Royal case on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. 
Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the case of Jack Royal. I knew it was Jack Royal, but then I was like, refer to the paper. Don't go rogue. Sure. I like when you go rogue, though. Well, but I don't want to say the wrong name. Of course. Um, so before the break, you teased us. I did. That we'd be learning some more about Andrew Adams, this old so-and-so. What you got for us? Well, Andrew Adams' parents divorced when Andrew was 11. From then on, he lived primarily with his mother, Joan, in Chapel Park. Andrew's father, William, owned Little Wings, which was a company that maintained all the private and commercial propeller planes used at Newcastle Airport. By his early 20s, Andrew was running the company with his father with plans for an expansion. Andrew was known as a hard worker, but he was also known as a hard partier. Andrew liked to cut loose after hours with clubs, raves, drugs, alcohol, women. But that isn't exactly shocking behavior for someone in their early 20s. In his late teens, Andrew started dating Kirsten Heathcote, a girl he met while attending middle school. Weird coincidence, Kirsten is the younger sister of Kevin Thompson's lawyer, Karen Graham. Huh. Yeah. Of course, I mean, at the time Karen worked with Kevin, Kirsten and Andrew were no longer together. It's just still a weird coincidence. Synchronicity, yeah. In early 1989, Kirsten caught Andrew at a bar with a woman sitting on his lap. The couple immediately broke up, and Andrew started to date the woman from his lap, Catherine Thompson. Mm. There's that Thompson name again, huh? It's yeah. All over the place. Uh, Andrew and Catherine soon bought a house together at 49 Sigley Street in Lemington, Newcastle, which was about two miles or 3.2 kilometers from where Andrew's mother lived. Unrelated, Kirsten became a police officer in 1990. Good for her. Good for her. By the summer of 1990, Andrew and Catherine had broken up. In January 1991, Andrew brought in Kevin Thompson as a roommate. Despite having the same last name, Catherine and Kevin, not related. Andrew and Kevin had a falling out over money, and after they were arrested for that presto armed robbery, Andrew kicked Kevin out. By the spring of 1992, Andrew was seeing 19-year-old Claire Brayson, a nursery nurse who met Andrew at a bar. On the morning of May 6th, 1992, Andrew and Claire were sleeping at Andrew's house when the phone rang. It was a police sergeant who told Andrew his house was surrounded by 25 armed officers and that Andrew was about to be arrested for the murder of Jack Royal. Andrew later said, quote, I thought someone was taking the piss, which is one of my favorite British slangs for absolutely no reason. Same. Andrew did as he was told and exited his home, exited his home with his hands on his head, and he was arrested and charged with the murder of Jack Royal. Andrew's best friend, John Hands, was also charged with Jack Royal's murder, and Andrew's ex-girlfriend, Catherine Thompson, was charged with incitement to murder. Andrew didn't officially meet his legal team until April 8, 1993, nearly one year after being arrested. There was his main lawyer, John Foley, and barristers, James Chadwin QC, and Patrick Cosgrove. James and Patrick realized that John planned to use the same defense 
for Andrew that James and Patrick used when Walter Heppel was on trial for Jack Royal's murder two years earlier. So they worried maybe there was a conflict of interest. James and Patrick said they, they should probably step down, even though John Foley said that there was no problem with that. There was a problem with that. You can't use the same, like, you, the same lawyers can't come in and use the same defense with a different, it's still. Yeah. New barristers were finally brought in on April 19th, just two days before the trial was set to start. So they requested a four-week adjournment to properly prepare for the murder trial. The judge gave them five days, which I'll say it, sounds wildly unfair. Yeah. You know they just got these guys in. Yeah. Either way. Without any physical evidence linking Andrew or John to the crime scene, the prosecution relied heavily on the testimony of supposed witness Kevin Thompson. The following is what Kevin claims happened on the night of John Ro Jack Royal's murder. At 6 p.m. on March 19th, Andrew called Kevin to ask him to drive him and John Hands to Wickham to, quote, chin a bloke who'd been cheeky to Kath. Kath, of course, being Catherine Thompson. Kevin said he met Andrew and John at the Denton Hotel at 10 p.m. When they arrived, Kevin asked the men for gas money, so Andrew gave him five pounds. From there, they drove in Andrew's car and picked up Kevin's blue Ford Escort, and then both vehicles drove to the gas station. Kevin's already losing me with his story, but... Yep. Kevin, Andrew, and John then drove both vehicles to Andrew's house at 49 Sigley Street, where Andrew and John went inside. They came out moments later with a dark-colored duffel bag, or hold-all, and a gas can, both of which were placed in the trunk of Kevin's car. Then all three men drove in Kevin's car to a nearby parking lot where a white Austin Montego was parked. Andrew and John drove off in the Montego with Andrew driving. They returned 10 to 20 minutes later, and Kevin asked, quote, Did you chin the bloke? Andrew allegedly took a single-barreled shotgun out of his bag and said, quote, I blew his fucking head off. Kevin claims that Andrew also described the crime scene, saying there was blood everywhere, including up the wall on the side of the porch. Pathologist Dr. Sunter, who examined the royal crime scene, said the description of the scene was consistent with comments that were allegedly made by Andrew to Kevin Thompson. And to that I say two things. One, if I hear someone was shot in the head close range with a shotgun, I'm going to assume that there was blood everywhere. Yep. And that doesn't mean that I've seen the crime scene myself. It just means I've seen movies involving guns. Well, and also, well, it, it really matched how Andrew told Kevin it was, or Kevin saw it himself. Thank you very much. Yep. Uh, because here we go. And two, only Kevin heard Andrew supposedly describe the crime scene. Why are we just not just assuming that Kevin was the killer? Exactly. But on with Kevin's story. Kevin said he followed Andrew and John to the St. Mary's Green parking lot, where they burned some coveralls using gas from the gas can. Neighbors saw the Montego on fire shortly after that and called the fire department. 
Andrew then asked Kevin to hide the shotgun in a shed at Kevin's home, but then changed his mind and said he'd just hide it in a behind a bin behind his mother's house instead. Then Kevin drove Andrew home, exiting the park through the only exit, which was also the only entrance. Kevin went to see Andrew the next day. He was told the Montego had originally been stolen from the Metro Park Hotel parking lot by, quote, a lad called Aula, which for some reason I really loved that detail, but not the point. Kevin then claims that Andrew set up a false alibi, claiming he was with his friends Brian Duffy and Neil Graham. A few days later, Andrew picked up the gun from behind his mother's house, and he and John destroyed it with a hammer. They put the trigger in one bag and the rest of the pieces in another, and then a cartridge that was in the gun was burnt. Again, according to Kevin. Now, how much do we believe Kevin's story? I mean, some of the details feel confusing, such as the detail Andrew asked Kevin to hide the murder weapon, but then in that moment changed his mind and said, no, no, I'll hide it myself. And if this is all true, why would Kevin go visit Andrew the next day? You, He just admitted to you he shot someone in the face? Maybe, maybe cut ties with that friend. Well, and for what? Do we do we have any, do we get any clarity? Do we know why he went to see him? Nope. But 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 why why was what did Jack do to Catherine that was so egregious? Do we do oh, we find that? We'll out? get there. Great, we'll get there. Hmm. And how would Kevin know that Andrew supposedly destroyed the gun? He wasn't there. Listen, he didn't see it. Not to get and ahead of us, smashing a gun with a hammer. Really, the best way to go about that. I have a lot of questions about that because I don't think that it's that easy to destroy a shotgun. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but listen, not to get ahead to my points I'm going to make at the end of the show, but, but I yeah. just I can't help myself but say, like, Kevin wasn't needed for this crime. There was he, – he proved – like, what did he do? Give a couple rides? Like, there was – to me, it's like – it just feels like he's making himself sound so innocent and, and removed. Yep. It's like, that's, no, come on. Can I uh, also point out, um, they supposedly contacted Kevin for a ride. And basically Kevin went, yeah, sure, but you got to pick me up first. What? <laughs> what is that? We need a ride. Great. Come get me. <laughs> I, great. I need a ride, too. <laughs> yeah. It and doesn't make any they sense. they drove in two vehicles, one place, got gas, drove in two vehicles to a house, drove, like, if they were going to do this, why were you involved? There, if they there had was, a again, there was getaway no car, then they would have driven that car, their own car, to the parking lot, picked up the car, the other car. That You weren't necessary, Kevin. No. But. Again. So, speaking of the gun, didn't police find a shotgun at the home of Mark Dixon that they right. believed might have been the same weapon used in Jack Royal's murder? Well, if they believed that, then why is the prosecution claiming Andrew destroyed the weapon? And why is the defense not pointing out that cons inconsistency? We're going to get mad at the defense a lot. Oh, I can't wait. 
And let's not forget, Kevin has a motive for throwing Andrew under the bus. For one thing, Kevin was good friends with Mark Dixon, who allegedly had the potential murder weapon. So if Mark was the real killer, Kevin would have the motive to try and save his friend, especially since Kevin had a falling out with Andrew over money when they were roommates. The defense suggested that Kevin had lied about the Jack Royal murder in exchange for a lighter sentence in the 1992 home invasion. Kevin claimed the two situations were completely unrelated, and that when he was released, two police officers came to him, quote, out of the blue, to talk about Jack Royal. And yes, Kevin claimed this while under oath. Kevin said he was testifying against Andrew purely as an act of conscience. Which is interesting. Since before Andrew was arrested, Walter Heppel went to trial for Jack Royal's murder and Kevin didn't bother to come forward then. Since he supposedly knew who did it and was there. Also, saying it was because of his conscience is funny when he didn't choose to come forward on his own, but rather waited until the police approached him first. (laughs) Yeah, great point. Great point. But Kevin wasn't the only one to claim that Andrew was involved. Mark Briggs, who was a friend of Kevin's, claims that Andrew's ex-girlfriend, Catherine, had told Andrew, quote, If you loved us, you'd sort him out. The him being Jack Royal. Andrew allegedly said, quote, Do you want us to go and shoot him? To which Catherine allegedly said yes. Catherine denies all of this. So does Andrew. But Mark went a step further and claimed he taught Andrew how to fire a shotgun by using a phone booth for target practice. Jane Macbeth, Mark's girlfriend at the time, claimed that she saw Andrew with a shotgun and that he bragged about the fact that the serial number had been filed off. I don't believe that's something people brag about, but maybe. Neil Willemson, another friend of Kevin Thompson's, claimed he saw Andrew and another man talking to Kevin in Denton on the night of the murder. This friend also claims Kevin showed him a shotgun, which he kept in a green sports bag. However, Neil's description of the third man did not match John Hands, which is weird because John was definitely the third person that would have been in that situation. So if you didn't see John, then you didn't see the three of them. Yeah, well, yeah, right? Which story is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find it interesting the only witnesses who claimed Andrew was involved in Jack Royal's murder were Kevin Thompson and Kevin Thompson's friends. Mm. No one not linked to Kevin ever placed Andrew at the scene. Andrew, of course, denied Kevin's account. However, Andrew did admit he had a shotgun at his house for three or four days. But Andrew claims the shotgun belonged to Kevin Thompson. Which, if Kevin turned out to be the real killer, allegedly, then he'd have even more motive to put the blame on Andrew. Andrew also admitted that he did in fact fire the shotgun 
that Kevin left at his home, but that he only did it after Mark Briggs had suggested they should go uh, shoot it for target practice just for fun. Well, that's interesting, too, because then he's got his prints on the gun. Yeah, well, supposedly the murder weapon was destroyed and never found, and just the trigger was put in a different bag. Only the trigger that his fingerprints would have been on, huh? Well, yeah, it's just such a weird... Yeah, it just all... Oh, God, it's just such a weird... It's a twisted tale, Kevin. I'll say that. It really is. Uh, on the night of Jack Royal's murder, Andrew claims he spent most of the evening with John Hands, Neil Graham, and Brian Duffy at Brian's house. Around 10.30 p.m., Andrew and John decided to drive to city center for some food, but while they were out, they decided to skip the food, and they just drove around for a while. At 10.53 p.m., they were stopped by police, which was verified by two constables, whose records showed that they ran Andrew's license plate number through their system at 10.47 p.m. and 10.53 p.m., and their system being the Police National Computer, or PNC, which I'm still interested in just 15, 20 minutes. Hell yeah. Uh, the constables claimed they only pulled the car over to verify that one of the occupants was the vehicle's owner. They didn't explain why they ran that same license plate number twice, just six minutes apart. Police confirmed the vehicle belonged to Andrew, and Andrew and John were let go. Kevin Thompson claimed Andrew told him that he and John drove up and down the West Road in Denton, hoping they'd get stopped so they could use it as an alibi for the murder. And my question is, if Andrew was driving on West Road for the sake of an alibi, why on earth would he want to place himself in an area less than six miles or ten kilometers from the crime scene? Police spotted Andrew's car at 10.47 p.m. and 10.53 p.m., and Jack's murder occurred at 11.35 p.m. That's not an alibi. <laughs> There's more than enough time for Andrew to get from West Road to L Laburnum Grove, where the murder took place. So to me, Kevin's claim that Andrew got pulled over as an alibi makes zero sense. No. But most of what Kevin said made zero sense. Yeah. After being pulled over, Andrew claims that he and John headed back to Brian's house, arriving around 11.05 p.m. They left again between 12 and 12.30. Andrew said when he left, he was stopped again by police on the way home, but I have not seen any police records to verify that. Neil Graham testified that he had been at Brian Duffy's house on the night of March 19th. He said Andrew and John were both there, but they left at some point in the evening. Andrew and John returned later, but Neil was unable to recall when the men left, when they returned, or how long they were gone. The prosecution claimed that this was proof that Andrew and John were using Neil as a false alibi, something Kevin Thompson had claimed. But to me... If a group of people are hanging out, and no offense, specifically dudes in their early 20s, and some people leave and come back, how often is it expected the rest of the group to check the times? I think it's more than possible they were just hanging out 
and they either didn't notice or didn't care what times they came and left. Yep. That's that's not evidence. It's it's not. It's it's absolutely not. No. John Hans told the court his movements on the night of Jack Royal's murder, and they were consistent with his with Andrew's story. And just a reminder that John Hans and Catherine Thompson were also on trial for their supposed involvement in Jack's murder. The prosecution pushed the idea that Catherine solicited Andrew's help to murder Jack in revenge for the death of her brother, David Thompson. I only said her and uh, Kevin weren't related. Oh, shit, you saucy minx. (laughs) I did do that. I did. uh, I did do that. Okay. I won't deny it. It's called intrigue. (laughs) (laughs) It's called she should be on medication. (laughs) I've lost. They'll tell you. They'll tell you. (laughs) I've lost my mind. So. Where was I? Uh, It was also argued that Andrew had killed Jack as a birthday present for Catherine because her birthday was two days after Jack's murder. I think it was a coincidence because I find that wild. But anyhow, Andrew told the court that during his relationship with Catherine, she only mentioned her brother David's death once and that she didn't seem to have any hostility towards Jack Royal. Even Catherine said she believed that Andrew was innocent. But of course she would say that because saying Andrew was guilty could make Catherine look guilty of incitement. Right. There was, of course, testimony at the trial that was meant to be in Andrew's favor, such as Andrew's father, William Adams. William said Andrew had 24-hour access to their business at Newcastle Airport and that it would have been possible for Andrew to destroy a gun there. Which doesn't feel like helpful evidence for Andrew. But William said it would take someone an incredibly long time to destroy a shotgun with a hammer. Which is strange that William was seemingly used as an expert on destroying guns. That's... Because I... Had he ever done that before? I don't. You know, this is this is one of the first we get routinely, routinely irritated at at cases being poorly investigated. But it is rare for us to get to, or I'll speak for myself to become unraveled by the court aspect of this. This is bungled, and I know we're not even there yet. But I'm bungled is an understatement. I just oh, it's. Not to mention this word again in this episode, but it is bananas. <laughs> Thank you kindly for that. I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I'm just no. like, I'm losing it over here. And it's, oh. I don't know that I've ever been this uh, up in arms about, <laughs> about trial strategy. But again, yeah. we've done this show long enough that I'm so like, long. I can just yep. pick out all of the places that I would be like, objection, mm-hmm. speculation. <laughs> Objection. Conjecture. Like, there's so many. Look, when it comes to the Jack Royal case as a whole, it it involves, obviously, murder of Jack Royal and David Thompson. Mm -hmm. And there is so little information about those two murders (laughs) 
99% of the information about this case is about this fucking muck up of a trial. <laughs> and I get why, because it's like, yeah. uh oh, here's another problem. And spoiler alert, so much got missed. I'll bring it in later. Of course. It's bad. <laughs> I, I, I'm so sure bad. of it. I'm sure it's so it. bad. Like this type this episode is called Jack Royal. It should be what the fuck did they do to Andrew Adams? <laughs> oh, because god. it's like good god, somebody say something. Put his father on the stand. And he's like, I guess he'd have the time and the place to destroy a weapon. It's like that's not helpful. But that's again that's, that's And also it's, he's it's not an expert. objection relevance. Like yeah. <laughs> put me in, coach. I know. You could say that anybody has the time and the means. Like that that's a, that's an absurd that that, that doesn't make any mm-hmm. I Oh yeah, I want to say that we're done. I know. And that it, it it just that we've plateaued and that this case isn't going to go wilder from here, but it does. I can't wait. It does. <laughs> I just can't wait. <laughs> Then we had the testimony from David Clark, a man who was involved in the home invasion in April 1992. David said that Kevin Thompson and a friend had been paid to murder Jack Royal. He claims that in 1991, Kevin said he wanted to shoot Andrew and that it would, quote, uh, wouldn't be the first time that he had shot someone. David admitted he didn't mention this information at Kevin Thompson's trial, but he had previously tried to discredit Kevin. I don't know how truthful David was, but the idea that Kevin was angry enough at Andrew to want to shoot him feels like even more motive to try and get Andrew convicted to me. Yeah. But an (laughs) ex-girlfriend of Andrew's told police that Andrew once confessed to her that he and John Hans had done, quote, the worst possible thing, which the prosecution suggested was in reference to Jack's murder. And while it was heavily suggested that Andrew killed Jack Royal, not one witness, not even Kevin Thompson, outright claimed to have seen Andrew pull that trigger. On May 18, 1993, the jury acquitted both John Hans and Catherine Thompson. However, that same jury found Andrew Adams guilty. Good God! Which, if you think about it, makes zero sense yep. if John and Catherine were both yep. innocent. John was with Andrew the night of Jack's murder. Two police constables even verified that. So if John was innocent of the crime, how was Andrew guilty? And the jury found Catherine not guilty of incitement, which means Andrew doesn't have a motive to kill Jack. Nope. If the jury believed Kevin Thompson's story enough that Andrew was found guilty, then all three involved should have been found guilty, since according to Kevin, all three played a role. Also, since Kevin admitted to driving Andrew and John, why wasn't he uh, charged with accessory to murder? This is the part, and look, I guess you could argue that he would have made a deal, but as far as I know, he wasn't originally charged. You haven't mentioned that he was originally charged. So to your point, he was not. Right. uh. Yep. Clusterfuck, if I may. (laughs) It's it's 
It's a hurricane of madness. It's insane. Uh, but somehow, Andrew's verdict was unanimous, and he was sentenced to life in prison. Jesus. A few days after the verdict, three of the jurors contacted Andrew's family to say that they regretted voting the way that they had. All three said that they were influenced by a fourth juror who claimed to know Andrew Adams personally and told the other jurors things about Andrew that had not been brought up in court, such as his drug use. Which seemed, from my understanding, <laughs> recreational. Mm-hmm. <coughs> where, yeah. where are the police now? That's a, th this is, that's a mistrial. Mm-hmm. The juror also repeatedly told other jury members that she knew that Andrew was guilty, which maybe feels like that juror shouldn't have been on the jury. <laughs> and if that's not frustrating enough, it turns out that Andrew's lawyer, John Foley, wrote the times down wrong when it came to Andrew's movement on the night of the murder. So when that information then had to turn around and be corrected before the trial, the prosecution then accused Andrew of changing his story so he'd seem innocent, even though it was his lawyer's cock-up and not his. In British law, having incompetent representation is not enough for an appeal. It needs to be proven that the incompetence led to identifiable errors in the trial and that those errors made the verdict unsafe. So in January 1997, Andrew filed for an appeal on the grounds of five issues. One, a juror had prior knowledge of Andrew and used that information to influence the rest of the jury against him. Two, there was an alleged misdirection by the judge regarding Kevin Thompson's testimony. Three, the prosecution failed to disclose records of police interviews with Kevin's co-accused in the Presto robbery. Four, Kevin's interviews with police were found to have, quote, inexcusable and serious irregularities. And some of his interviews were not recorded, of course. And five... Andrew's conviction was inconsistent with the acquittal of John Hans, who was with Andrew at the time of the murder. The Court of Appeals rejected the claim that the jury was a, had a bias, saying, quote, Before the jury was sworn, the judge said that any juror with prior knowledge of any defendant should declare it before being sworn. And none did. And nobody has the ability to lie. Not in that court. This is why the Court of Appeals exists. It doesn't this stop. This is why you exist, so that you yep. can look into it. So you can yep. look into it. Yep. Not you. Not you, the court. You just say, this should be looked into. And then others do it. That's yep. how it... Yep. In the end, the Court of Appeals felt that none of the issues were significant enough to have made a difference to the jury's final decision... So Andrew's appeal was rejected. Yeah. Yep. In 1998, Andrew's mother, Joan, who tirelessly lobbied to get Andrew another appeal, was diagnosed with cancer, and she soon became too sick to visit him in prison. After oh. weeks of negotiating with prison officials, Andrew was 
finally allowed out to see his mother at Newcastle General just two days before Christmas. Andrew later said, quote, They let me have about half an hour with her. Then about 20 armed police descended on the place. They claimed I'd been planning to escape and dragged me back to prison. His mother died later that night. Oh, God. She was 58 years old. Andrew said while he read her eulogy at her funeral, he was forced to wear handcuffs while a police helicopter circled the area. In June 1998, Andrew submitted an application to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, or CCRC. It was established through the Criminal Appeal Act of 1995 and is the only body with the authority to send a case back to the Court of Appeals. The CCRC annually refers 30 to 40 cases back to Court of Appeals. Between 2009 and 2015, the CCRC's funding was cut by 30%, and they went from 50 case review managers down to 34 And yet between 2010 and 2013, their caseload increased by 74%. So because of this, it can take months or even years for an applicant to hear back about a decision. Typically, it's about eight months for an applicant who is already in custody and maybe 13 months for an applicant who is not. The CCRC officially agreed to review Andrew's case in 1999, but during the review, two of the CCRC investigators working Andrew's case left for other jobs, so the case was assigned to Scott Marcroft in 2001. And at that point, then, he basically had to start over. So that's several years lost. So we're going to take a look at some of the things that Scott discovered. I'm going to put them in point form because it was easier uh, and seemed like a more timely manner to do it that way. Uh, The home invasion in Consett on April 6, 1992, Kevin was arrested, but claimed his only role in the robbery was to sell the stolen items. He later claimed in court under oath that police first questioned him about the Jack Royal murder out of the blue, were his exact words, after his release. Well, according to a police memo dated April 6th, which was the day of the robbery and the day of Kevin's initial arrest, an investigator wrote that Kevin was, quote, quickly identified and converted to assist the cause. And remember how I mentioned that two witnesses had had identified Kevin as an assailant at the robbery, but no witnesses picked Kevin's photo out of a photo lineup? That's because police purposely didn't put Kevin's photo in the lineup as he had already agreed to help the police, and he'd be useless to them if he went to prison. And when no witness could identify Kevin, his robbery charge was dropped to a handling charge, and he was released. Wow. Uh Yep. And Kevin agreed to help the police right away. That means he lied about being approached out of the blue days later. And that means he lied under oath, which I'm no lawyer or judge, but that feels like a no-no. Yeah. Yeah. Scott also found 15 important documents that covered Kevin's dealings with police. 
There was no police misconduct found regarding the deal that was made, but the overall deal wasn't disclosed during the trial. Police also conducted interviews with Kevin and his girlfriend, Nicola Henderson, which were not recorded. The CCRC believes these interviews were as long as 90 minutes. Whoa. The notes from some of those interviews went missing, as did the recording of an entire interview with Kevin. Mm-hmm. So some weren't recorded, and some were, and then just the recordings disappeared. After allegedly making the deal while Kevin was still in custody, he was driven home to get toiletries and a change of clothes, which doesn't seem like regular police prisoner behavior. I might even go as far as to say special treatment <laughs> comes to mind. <laughs> that does feel like it would be the right label, yes. <laughs> I'm just so fucking over Kevin Thompson, you know what oh I mean? Oh my god. It's 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 wild. It's wild. Yeah. Kevin just doesn't stop. Uh, Andrew's first two barristers, Chadwin and Cosgrove, uh, who didn't meet Andrew until almost a year after his arrest and left the case two days before the trial due to a conflict of interest. The CCRC believes the barristers should have realized much earlier that the conflict would arise and that they, quote, should have declined to accept the brief to represent Andrew Adams. Yeah. During the trial, the prosecution claimed that Andrew had destroyed the gun he used to kill Jack. However, they neglected to mention that another shotgun and potentially the murder weapon was found in the possession of Mark Dixon, who was a friend of Kevin Thompson's. Beverly Yaden, a witness in Jack Royal's case, had identified Walter Heppel as the getaway driver. She picked Walter out of a photograph lineup or identity parade. Beverly even described the driver's hair as short, cropped at the back. Whereas, according to police notes, Andrew at the time was described as having dark brown shoulder-length hair. And yet, Beverly was never asked to testify at Andrew's trial, even though her testimony would have challenged that of Kevin Thompson's. And yeah, somehow, somehow we're still going. Yeah. And not only could Beverly place Walter at the scene, let's not forget, Walter also had a motive to kill Jack, as Walter was the brother of Wendy, who was David Thompson's common law partner. Andrew's defense team didn't cross-examine the witnesses about the shotgun. Every witness mentioned the shotgun. However, some said it was single-barreled, some said it was double-barreled. No one could be consistent. The trial was a few years after the murder. I I guess I, I, I get that memories aren't going to be 100%. I just find it surprising the defense didn't point out that they were inconsistent, even just to count, cast some sort of doubt on the witnesses. Yeah. Uh, the CCRC also found that it was a terrible idea to use Andrew's father as a witness. <laughs> yeah. Especially when he was expected to give evidence as an expert as to how long it takes to break up a shotgun. <laughs> yeah. Yep. In Andrew's application to the CCRC, he repeatedly claimed that a member of the jury knew him personally and that they told the rest of the jury about it. The CCRC interviewed 11 members of the jury as the 12th juror 
uh, had passed since then. When asked, quote, did you at any time become aware that any other jury member may have had personal knowledge of the three defendants or anyone connected with the case? Juror number nine said, yes. Quote, as soon as we went back to the jury room after being sworn in, before we heard any evidence, an elderly lady said, ah, yes, I know this case and these, these lads are guilty. The juror went on to say the woman repeated herself and the rest of them told her she can't say things like that. Which is absolutely how we treat the elderly is you can't say that. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Oh, I have so many things to say. Yep. Yep. Again, it just keeps going. Uh, juror number 11 said she heard one of the other jurors make a remark about knowing the defendants, but that juror was a young man around the age of 30, which is a far cry from the elderly woman that juror number nine claimed made the comment. But like juror number 11, juror number four, who was the foreman, said that a juror claimed to be familiar with Andrew was a male juror. So I don't know why they agree that juror exists, but they can't The jury say, foreman, the jury foreman, what are you doing? What are you doing? Your whole job is to then go and be a fucking rat. That's your job. You should go yep. and then rat them out. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point. Yeah. If someone's saying, like, that's... And by the way, <laughs> you'll get out of there sooner. Yeah. You'll get out of there sooner. They call I'm a mistrial. You'll get out of there sooner. I can't. I can't. This is crazy. <laughs> you know what I love? I love when you get real passionate. Oh, it's uh, injustice. It's one of my favorite is, things, as you know, you, injustice, injustice you're right. is one of my biggest, biggest problems, and I, yeah. I, I can't. Yeah. Well, the foreman uh, also stated the juror said that they had seen Andrew around town, so the the foreman thought, oh, that means they probably don't know them personally. If it was anything more than that, the foreman claims he absolutely would have brought it to the judge's attention. Of the 11 jurors, only juror number nine said the comment came from a woman. Everyone else either claimed not to have heard it or said the comment was made by a male. So is number nine misremembering the detail? After the trial, juror number nine said she was in contact with Andrew's family and she became quite friendly with Andrew's mother, Joan. Juror number nine also visited Andrew in prison which psychologist had screams of guilt. And, well, just also lack of any personal boundaries, um, that respecting well. the law. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, again, still going. Still uh, some things that were found that were a problem. Um, I have specifically two things left that were like, in the trial or not brought up in the trial. Um, and these ones I saved uh, for last in this list because they've seemed the most surprising to me, <laughs> which doesn't bode well uh, for you. Uh, this next one involves the getaway car, the Montego. It was found burned out in St. Mary's green parking lot hours after the murder. 
Something that never came up at the trial was the fact that the driver's seat in the Montego was in a position for someone like five foot seven, and Andrew was six foot two. So if Andrew was driving the car, why was the seat so far forward? My next question, how tall is Kevin Thompson? But of course, because he's not a celebrity, Google won't tell me. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's David Thompson, the man who was killed in the altercation with Jack Royal in 1987. By now, we know David's sister, Catherine, dated Andrew for a short time. But what we had not heard at the trial or in this episode until this moment was that David and Catherine had two brothers, George and Martin. At some point after Jack was acquitted for David's murder, George was convicted of assaulting Jack's son, Paul, who you may recall had a falling out with David after their scrap metal business went under. The day after Jack's murder, both George and Martin were arrested for the crime. However, they were soon released. George claims he was home with his girlfriend at the time, according to police records. They just went, yeah, that seems reasonable. Even though an informant told police that Walter Weppel's father claimed that George had killed Jack. And an informant claimed that Walter Heppel was George Thompson's getaway driver. You know, Walter Heppel, the person the witness very well described as being there as the getaway driver. Yeah, that Walter Heppel. A gas station attendant told police on the day of Jack's murder, Martin Thompson purchased a small amount of diesel from them, which he put into a gas can. Martin admitted to buying the gas and said he borrowed the can from Walter Heppel. That didn't seem like a red flag, though. So who doesn't buy gas, you know? Uh, and to be clear, if Catherine Thompson's motive was revenge over her brother's death, then both George and Martin have that same motive. So I'll never understand why police just didn't investigate these brothers. <laughs> they just... You were on with your girlfriend? Oh, makes sense. Makes sense. <laughs> no need to look into that further. It's not like yeah. someone would lie for their partner. Oh, well, case closed. <laughs> and some of the information that the CCRC found was discovered using Holmes. What is Holmes? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Quick serial killer side note that seems irrelevant, but trust me, side note... <laughs> I can't wait. I love the ones that the title goes the entire width of the page. Yep. So I don't have time to get into this disgusting monster of a person. So consider this the Cliff's Notes version. Peter Sutcliffe was a serial killer known as the Yorkshire Ripper. For Lauren's psychologist hat, Sutcliffe was the oldest of six children living in a working-class Catholic family in West Yorkshire, England. He left school at 15 and was described as a loner with voyeuristic tendencies. Mm -hmm. He took various jobs before working part-time at a local morgue, where he would brag to friends about robbing bodies. Mm -hmm. Sutcliffe married Sonia Surma in 1974 and got a job as a truck driver in 1976. 
between October 1975 and November 1980, Sutcliffe murdered 13 women and brutally attacked 11 more. The murder victims ranged in age from 16 to 47. Wow. And and because you know I'm all about uh, supporting the victim more than piles of garbage, uh, the victims included, this is specifically uh, murder victims, of course, William, uh, sorry, Wilma McCann, Emily Jackson, Irene Richardson, Patricia Atkinson, Jane McDonald, Jean Gordon, Yvonne Pearson, Helen Ritka, Vera Millward, Josephine Whitaker, Barbara Leach, Marguerite Walls, and Jacqueline Hill. Seven of the 13 victims were sex workers, which made police prematurely and inaccurately believe the Yorkshire killer would only kill sex workers. Sutcliffe was arrested in January 1981 while in the company of a 24-year-old sex worker. So, I mean, saved her life. But in May 1981, Sutcliffe was convicted of 13 murders and seven counts of attempted murder. He was sentenced to 20 life terms with a recommended minimum sentence of 30 years. I mean, the dude's the dude has since died, so uh, I shouldn't be angry. But 13 murders and you're like, oh, okay, but 30 years, though, 30 years minimum. It's like you gave him 20 life terms. Just make him stay. It's done. No minimum. No minimum. No minimum. But during the five-year search for Sutcliffe, police spent an estimated 25 million police hours on the case. It was one of the largest and most expensive manhunts in British history. The investigation was, to put it nicely, a hot mess. Mistakes were made, such as falling for a hoax recording that claimed to be from the killer, which led police to waste time searching in the wrong areas. Sutcliffe was interviewed by police nine times prior to his arrest In one particular interview, Sutcliffe was wearing a pair of boots that matched a print left at the scene of one of the crimes. Sutcliffe himself said, and I quote, It was just a miracle they did not apprehend me earlier. They had all the facts. (laughs) When even the... Like a true narcissist. Like a When even the killer is like, I was right there. Oh, that's on them. Wow. Uh, there was also the problem with just too much information. Any information that was learned would get written on index cards. And they there ended up being so many cards that the room that housed the index cards had to have a reinforced floor <laughs> because there were so many. Oh my God. And this is where we connect back to today's case. Because there was so much information and it was time consuming to try and find something in it, not to mention how many lives were lost while police unknowingly had the killer's identity in a room full of index cards, Mm -hmm. investigators realized they needed a system for properly cataloging and referencing evidence once it was collected. The system created was called Home Office Large Major Enquiry System or Holmes. The Holmes database contained police paperwork from Andrew Adams' investigation. The defense 
didn't view all the data relating to the the case. Not sure why, uh, but neither did the lawyers in the Walter Heppel case. So good to know they're being consistent. Wow. So what information is in Holmes regarding Andrew Adams? Well, for one thing, the police who stopped Andrew on the night of the murder, they said they were on the lookout for two stolen vehicles, which is why Andrew was pulled over. But after verifying that the vehicle belonged to Andrew, he was let go with no incident. Police stated Andrew was stopped in the vicinity of a pub called Bobby Shafto. And based on the location of that pub, it very well could mean that Andrew and John were legitimately heading back to Brian Duffy's when they were stopped because it is on the way. None of this evidence was known in 1992, and the two officers who were involved in the stop didn't record their statements about the event until 1994. Other information in the database include John O'Brien, a security guard at the Gibbside Arms in Wickham. From his office, John could see the only entrance and exit to the St. Mary's Green parking lot where the burnt-out Montego was found. John gave a witness statement on March 22nd that described seeing a white Montego arrive and a minute later leave at high speed. The same vehicle returned at a fast speed, and 10 seconds later, John heard two loud bangs from the direction the vehicle had traveled. John said no vehicles left the parking lot after that. John's statement could have been easily verified by Gibson Arm, Gibside Arms CCTV security tape, but for some reason the video wasn't saved. The car was found on fire in that area, and they thought, oh, cool, we have a security tape. Nah, <laughs> that seems too easy. And according to a map of the parking lot, there is a path called the Colway Lane footpath that leads to Southview Terrace. So it's possible whoever drove that Montego could have used the footpath to escape the area without being seen on camera or by John O'Brien. And that footpath was wide enough that it could have accommodated a car. So it's possible whoever drove that car could have escaped out of sight using that path. However, no other cars were seen, and Kevin Thompson openly claimed he used the actual exit when driving Andrew and John to that parking lot, not the footpath. But how do you drive through the exit when your car didn't appear on camera, Kevin? I mean, I shouldn't be surprised that Kevin's full of lies. <laughs> I'm just so tired of dealing with Kevin Thompson, man. Yeah. Oh, God. John was never called as a witness, but his witness statement was read aloud in court. The CCRC later criticized the decision as John clearly states he saw no vehicles leaving the parking lot, whereas Kevin Thompson claimed he drove through the exit after the Montego was set on fire. Christopher Williams and Michael Hessen, Hessen, both of whom lived in houses overlooking that parking lot, said they saw the Montego that night just after it was set on fire. Neither of them saw anyone in or around the car. 
or anyone walking in the direction that Kevin Thompson claims they went. Which means, if they're telling the truth, whoever set that Montego on fire likely exited the parking lot through that footpath. Michael's statement was read in court, but Christopher's was not. Another witness, Paul Walton, reported seeing a large burgundy sedan parked near the Montego, which was gone by the next morning. Witnesses Yvonne Hogarth and Morris Birdsall both saw a similar burgundy vehicle traveling at a high speed along Southview Terrace at 11.50 p.m. Just 10 minutes earlier, Gene Hayden saw three men acting suspiciously along that footpath. Police made a public appeal looking for the burgundy sedan, and an anonymous caller said that they had seen the car driving along the footpath on the night of the murder. And wouldn't you know, that footpath leads to Southview Terrace. And if you cross Southview Terrace and continue on that footpath, it connects you to a road called Mount View. And you know who lived on Mount View at the time of Jack Royal's murder? Walter Walter Hipple, the first man to stand trial for Jack's murder. It's madness. <laughs> it's just all there. It's, it's just all, all there. there. It's all there. Given everything we just learned, and I know it was a lot, we shouldn't be surprised that on September 27, 2005, the CCRC concluded their investigation and referred Andrew Adams' case back to the Court of Appeal. Their submission included various errors, the potential jury bias, and the fact that Andrew's incompetent defense representation deprived Andrew of a fair trial. According to the CCRC report, Andrew's chances of acquittal were, quote, significantly disadvantaged by the representation he received. After a six-day hearing in January 2007, a judge stated, quote, It is difficult to conclude that the criticisms and failures which we found in respect of any one of the individual topics were on their own sufficient to render the verdict unsafe, but we are quite satisfied that taken together, they were sufficient to render the verdict unsafe. So Andrew Adams' conviction was quashed and he was finally released. And maybe it was the barrister's inexperience that was the problem, but I also think maybe that five days they were given to prepare for the original trial just maybe wasn't enough. Yeah. And it cost Andrew 14 years in prison. The police insinuated that Andrew's ex-girlfriend, Catherine, was happy to see Andrew be found guilty because they claimed there was sexual violence in the relationship. However, Catherine later said that that was a lie and the idea of police lying about sexual violence to make their case disgusts me. Yeah, I'll say it. Yeah. When Andrew was finally released, Catherine said, quote, I have said for 14 years he's innocent. I have never doubted it. It caused me and my family so much pain. We've never been able to forget it. It's been a living nightmare. Andrew admits that he was quite angry during his first few years in prison, and as a result, he was moved around to various jails, including Brixton, Durham, Franklin, Wakefield, Belmarsh, Full Sutton, Whitemoor, and Long Larton. But Andrew eventually settled and became a model prisoner. During the day, he trained as a plumber, and in the evenings, he studied law. The true joke is, if Andrew had pleaded guilty at the start, 
he would have been eligible for parole a year before he was released. Andrew then spent years trying to get financially compensated for the very obvious miscarriage of justice, but he was denied several times. Andrew said, quote, No money in the world will ever pay for the hell I've been through. Money doesn't replace people. I only wish my mother was alive so she could see me finally clear my name. He also said, quote, People should never forget that Mr. Royal's family are also victims of this mess. The real killer is still out there. But sadly, Andrew struggled outside of prison. His familial support system had slowly decreased over the years. His mother and his grandmother both died while Andrew was serving time, and his father, William, succumbed to early-onset Alzheimer's. When Andrew was released, he had the support of his girlfriend, Claire Brayson, who started dating Andrew in the spring of 1992, just months before his arrest. And while Andrew initially went to stay with Claire, things didn't work out between them, and soon Andrew was left on his own. He, of course, still had the support of his friends, uh, such as John Hans, who visited Andrew several times a month throughout his time in prison. But without the support system, who were there for Andrew during the original trial, Andrew struggled on the outside. From his time in prison, Andrew suffers from depression and PTSD, so he struggled to find a job. He receives incapacity benefit, which is about 300 pounds a month, which is equivalent to 362 US dollars. Hardly enough to live on. Yeah. Andrew applied for compensation multiple times. He has continually been rejected. In 2009, Andrew was given a suspended sentence for stealing a pair of trousers. And in March 2009, he was also charged with stealing 30 packets of filet steak worth 350 pounds from Marks and Spencer. He was given a 12-month conditional discharge and ordered to pay 640 pounds compensation. He was later sentenced to 12 weeks in prison for multiple shoplifting offenses, including taking electrical goods from B&Q, Wix, and Asda. Andrew was also charged with failing to return a rental car. In January 2013, Andrew was given a 12-month conditional discharge after cashing two checks worth £640 at Abbey National in Newcastle. The checkbook had been taken from a house in Gosforth days prior. Andrew cashing the checks was caught on CCTV cameras. When he was interviewed, Andrew immediately confessed two counts of fraud by false representation. And it's just sad that Andrew feels... Like, it feels like he's struggling to survive in the world that the system created for him, and yet the system won't financially help him to survive. Even though Andrew spent 14 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit, and I say this in earnest, hashtag justice for Andrew Adams. Yes. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails. I'm fucking fired up. <laughs> <laughs> Listen. Same. Yeah. Nice. Um, so let's get this break out of the way because we got some things to rage about. Yep. We got some machines to rage uh, nice. against. Uh, grab another drink, hit the cam one more time, and we're going to be right back to finish up the, the Jack Royal case, which is kind of the Andrew Adams case on this yeah. episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the case of Jack Royal. Andrew Adams. Um, 
<laughs> I just also want to give yeah. a quick disclaimer that Sharky, uh, my cat, has been just really wanting to love hard throughout a lot of this. So if you heard any banging or whatnot, it's him like rubbing against the mic, rubbing against me, rubbing against my pen. It's just been, it's made it tough to write. Okay. All right. Let's get into this thing. Wow. <laughs> what a wild <laughs> ride. I was yeah. saying to Christy in the break, this is one of my favorite episodes I think we've ever done because it just took turns I wasn't expecting, which is always something. Of course. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm skimming here because we know what I really want to get to is talking about this case. Of course. What's it, oh, here's one thing that struck me, though. I was watching an episode of 2020 recently, like within the past couple days. And there was a little um, gentleman that some of you who listen to the show might be familiar with named Amet Murphy. Of course. And he was giving his take on a case uh, brilliantly. And <laughs> of one of the points that he made, though, as a former prosecutor, yeah. or as a former, yeah, former prosecutor, um, was that, I love, there we go. I was like, my, my, I, my voice was not catching up to my thoughts. Here we go. Was that juries tend to really respond better to eyewitness testimony than anything else. So if you have a case where you have a lot of forensics, it may not be as weighted in you getting your conviction as sure. one where you have maybe some less forensics, but you have eyewitnesses. So right from the get in this case, when you were talking about uh, Walter, uh, who was absolutely ID'd by witness, by Beverly. Uh, yep. Every time I hear the name Beverly, I think of A League of Their Own. Beverly! It's it's burned in my brain, but anyway. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. So that was interesting to me, that it was like there, the witness statements weren't enough there. Which, again, not that that isn't necessarily true, but it just, I like heard Matt Murphy's voice in my head in that moment. And it just made me think like, oh, that's interesting. Like having people that are saying like, no, I can absolutely confirm it was that person not holding any water in court. That was my first red flag is yep. my point. Yep. So I also do love that this other gun that was found, it was a possible match to the shell casings. So it also... Again, as we talk about on this show quite often, in a court of law, it's like, that's not necessarily a match. That's not necessarily going to hold up. But I also don't need to tell you, neither is the other one that's allegedly in pieces. Did they find the gun in pieces or just the trigger? Did they find any of it? Nope. So here's another question. Where, why? <laughs> You're going to hear a lot of that over the next few minutes. But why the detail of the destruction of the gun? The gun was never found. Yep. Who's to say what happened to the gun? Yep. There may not be another gun. Nope. Five guys named Mark made me think of the uh, musical I saw advertised a lot in the 1990s called Five Guys Named Mo. Hey, that's not important to this at all. Uh, you named a business called Little Wings. I immediately assumed food. Turns out, not the case. What a shame. <laughs> what a disappointment. Um, what a disappointment, exactly. So the other thing that I thought was really interesting here is that we know that Andrew had not been dating Catherine for very long at the time all of this was going down. Yeah. We also know that he and his other girlfriend had broken up. His other girlfriend, um, Kirsten, had broken up because she had caught him with Catherine on his lap. Then he and Catherine bought a house. Then they broke up. And that all happened within less than two years. Yeah. 
So again, not that I'm suggesting that people haven't known people for less amount of times and done out of the this world things for them. Sure. But it also just struck me that I was like, it wasn't like he was with Catherine during the time of the death of her brother and that he sure. saw her through it and she was so angry and he was like, I'm going to do this and get retribution for you. You know what yeah. I mean? Like that I would have more... I would tend to believe a little bit more than someone that he kind of, in the grand scheme of life, kind of briefly dated. A year, under two years, that's not, it's not super brief, but it's not, again, even I if it was that amount you, of time. Brief. Right. Yeah. But, but but again, even if it, was, if it was that amount of time, but it was over the time of her brother's death. It's just odd to me that, that yeah, that would be, again, from that's from like a psychological perspective. It's just like, would he feel that he needed to do that for her after only knowing her that long and not being there when he watched her go through it. Sure. You know? Okay. I just have to also say the fact that he was at home and then the police not only uh, were surrounding the house, but then were polite enough to make him give him a phone call. And I was like, this is the difference between the United States and the UK. In the yeah. United States, it's a bullhorn. Come out with your yeah. hands up. We do not give sure. a fuck. In the, but what I like is in the UK, how dignified. They pick up the phone. They say, I'm so sorry, Andrew, but if I may, I request your presence outside as you are being arrested for murder. I mean, I just... it. By the way... A- this is Muffy Southmouth. Um, <laughs> I, I, like how, I like how Muffy Southmouth has aged a bit. Well, we, yeah, she started a long time ago. She might be a time traveler. Time traveling detectives. We can't get into that now. Okay. <laughs> um, then I just start writing notes like the following. What was Kevin's alibi? Just waiting for them? Why was Kevin even needed for this crime? As we know... Can you give us a ride? Yeah, but if you pick me up, it doesn't make sense. No. But it's also the fact that it feels like the, it feels like that entire trial, every time Kevin was speaking, the jury went, oh, shit, no way. And the defense went the same. Because the defense just, it was like, they were like, oh, this is damaging to our case. (laughs) It's like, I'm riveted to his story. I know, but something like say something anything because he can't prove any of it oh poke some holes it's what well you're for well and this is the other thing they're they're this is also the difference and i think that this is the antithesis to what i've already mentioned from genius prosecutor ex-prosecutor um (laughs) murphy um was there's a difference, though, between mm-hmm. an eyewitness. So someone who's saying, I'm not connected to this, but I know that that person was in that car at that time. I sure. can pick him out of a lineup, all of the above. That's an eyewitness. All of this case is just on random speculation from, yep. from these random people who you then find out have reason to vilify Andrew Adams. That's not the same as being a witness. You know what I'm saying? Like, this isn't an impartial third party who came across something happening and remembered details. This is someone who was intrinsically involved, knew everyone involved, and had reason to want to get revenge. So there's so many people. Then Mark Briggs said, Catherine said, and Mark Dixon said that this person said, and, you know, Kevin Thompson said that this person said, and then all I wrote down at this moment was to create confusion. A quote from nice. my favorite movie, Clue. Of because course. again, at this point, I'm like, what they were successful at, what Kevin Thompson, I really believe, was very successful at was creating confusion. There's so many details 
and so many different people and so many different that it's like there was a couple points where I was like, I'm getting lost. Not that you weren't being cohesive and cogent. You were. But it was just in the sheer chaos of all of these details that were also unnecessary, unprovable, uh, again, complete conjecture. It's wild. I've never, of, of all the cases that I feel like I've consumed over the last few years doing this podcast, but also just in my true crime viewing. Of course. Never do I believe I have ever heard of a case that was more confusing mm -hmm. than this. Yep. And it worked for them. It really worked for that prosecution, which is, again, wild. Yeah. Um, okay. Again, to me, a huge detail here is that Mark Briggs was like, well, we practiced target shooting with that gun. Andrew admitted that too. And again, to me, I'm like, that's just to get his fingers on the gun. Like, to me, it's like, that's, that's like, what? they tar Did they do target practice with the gun after the murder? Likely not, because then we're to believe it was being destroyed. Sure. So if he did target practice with it before the, before the murder, then anyone else handling that gun could put on gloves. And then we don't know if he was wearing gloves. Again, I'm speculating. But you see what I'm saying here is that it's like, this yeah. isn't helping the case that Andrew's guilty to me. This is no. only helping to me that he's being set up. 100%. Um, then, again, this this idea that he was murdering Jack as a birthday present for Catherine is <sighs> natural born killer shit. Like, is that impossible to me? No, but I don't know that we've seen anything yet from these people to believe that they're that deranged. Um, not impossible. Just haven't seen that yet. And sure. to that, I wrote down the following note. And this is the big thing I'd like to say about this entire case. Sure. Are there text messages between Andrew and Catherine or anything corroborating any of this story? Is there any evidence whatsoever about this story that Kevin Thompson has, I'll say it, concocted? Was there anything? Because from what we're hearing, there wasn't. Sure. So... To me, the fact that they managed to get a conviction on someone's, I'll say it, ramblings yep. is wild. Oh, yeah. If there was a set of text messages that between Catherine and, and Andrew that corroborated even a fraction of this, I would say, well, there you go. But there's nothing. No. Well, and it was 1990, so. Great point. There wouldn't, there wouldn't be Good luck that paper trail anyway. Anything would have been like set between them. But it's like, but then why would Kevin Thompson have been involved in what was said between intimate Well, partners? then I would go so far as to say as diary entries, notes, letters. Was there any sort of evidence, any sort of tangible proof of this? No. No. Um, the ex-girlfriend of Andrew saying, well, Andrew said that he and John did the worst thing possible. Again, like I said, objection, speculation. We don't know what the worst thing possible is. That could mean one thing to somebody else, to somebody else, to somebody else. Sure. Why was I not allowed to try this case? Well, at the time I was a child. But I think even as a child, <laughs> I might have done a better job. Oh, my um, God. Can you imagine little you in, like, a pantsuit entering the court with, like, a briefcase and you open it and then take out, like, a really cute lunchbox on the side oh, for your snacks is, on the trial? This is begging to, this is begging to happen. I, child lawyers. Child lawyers. That's a show. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about that when we get offline. Um, <laughs> the, the jury acquitting John and Catherine, but finding Andrew guilty, again, that that's, 
that's wacky. That is just yeah. absolute insanity. Um, his his appeal being turned down, a horror show. I, I, again, thank goodness it turned out the way it did, but I'll, I'll get to that. In a, I mean, the fact, again, what this man went through when he yeah. – we know that the case was bungled. The fact yep. that he had to give up this time in his life, he only saw his mother for that short time. He had to go through the, like, embarrassment and and shame of wearing handcuffs giving her eulogy. Um, it's disgusting. It's just, it's this, again, j- justice for, her, for him, I completely agree with you. Uh, all of these details that came up about the way it was bungled, Unbelievable. The fact that the fo- the jury foreman was like, well, I didn't think it was that serious. That's not for you to decide. If somebody has come to, as saying in front of yeah. the jury room, well, I've seen him around town. Now, I know that we're rules gals, but that's enough, jury foreman. That's enough. That, that's as, And listen, I could be wrong. I'm, I don't know the ins and outs of, of the jury system. I certainly don't in the UK. But I believe that part of the foreman's job is absolutely to report anything that seems untoward. Sure. Even this woman, this one older woman, whether she did or she didn't, but this one older woman saying, oh, I know him, he's guilty. That is actually also enough. It's really serious. If someone has come in off the get, you hear about this all the time. In other cases where it's like, someone from the jury said this, so the foreman told the judge. Like, it happens. Well, and also, when in doubt, just tell the judge. This is my point. It's like, it's not up to you to make the judgment call of whether or not the person saying I've seen him around town is enough. You know who it is? Spoiler alert, the judge. It's in the name. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I can't. I can't. Um, This serial killer, Peter Sutcliffe. I love that you were building a profile because listen, obviously, so was I. There's, uh, I want to know where the anger is towards women. Yes. Um, but there may not even necessarily be, I think that it's a lot about control. Um, probably he was being the oldest of six. He was probably had a very high standard that his younger siblings did not. And I think he didn't take too kindly to that. And of course, I'm sure there's other things that I don't know, obviously, but just have to say. Of course. Um, in that case, the police falling for hoax recordings. Was there prison time for the people that made the hoax recordings? Because you know what I think? There should be. If you do something <laughs> like that to... Yeah. Infringe on a a serial killer of any case, but especially one where you're losing time and more women are dying, you should go to jail. You should go to jail and do some time. Sorry. I don't know if they were ever caught or like if they ever found the specific person, but it was literally a recording sent to the police. And because of the voice, the police went, okay. He's got this specific accent, which means he's from this area. So we're going to move everybody over to this area way over here. But it it wasn't it wasn't real. So I don't know if they ever caught who actually sent those in, but it sent them on a wild goose chase and it was years. It's just the fact that they had him nine times and then we're like, oh, okay, well, I guess you can And go. he was flagrant enough to wear boots that he wore to one of the killings. Yeah. I mean, come on. Come on. Now, you're going to have to forgive me because I have a question because there was a lot going on. (laughs) Yeah, there really was. So, Andrew Adams' car, the Montego. Yes. That's not Andrew Adams' car. That's, okay. This is where I started to The Montego was stolen 
from a parking lot, from a hotel parking lot earlier in the day and used just as the getaway car. Andrew Adams' car was used to pick up Kevin to give him a ride. Um, Ride buddies, I guess. Yeah. Uh, They picked up Kevin and then drove and got gas and then went to Andrew's house where I guess they left the car. I don't know. Kevin wasn't very clear about it. <laughs> well, this is this this is this is a question that I have. Yeah. Do we have anything tying the Montego to Andrew Adams? No. Nope. Did he steal that car? Is there any nope. proof that he stole that car? Nope. The only thing we have is Kevin Thompson saying that Andrew said it was stolen by a lad named Aula. Right. And that's it. And then it somehow came into his possession. In this, it was left in a parking lot, which makes it seem like it, this was the whole purpose of it as a getaway car, because they planned this whole crime out. But there's right. nothing that connects Andrew to that car. That's what I couldn't. That's that was one of the th- question marks for me, where I was like, "Wait a minute! So was he seen in that car, and then that car was burning later? No, no. There, this is another car. Mm-hmm. So." Great point about the heights and the height of the the height of the seat. Because what I would yeah. also say is that what state was the car in when it was found? Because if it was if we already if the, the seat we know it wasn't completely destroyed, is my point. Sure. So then my question becomes how was that car processed? Right? Sure. Was there any anything left in there, anything that could have tied someone to having stolen it? Because again, if you can't connect him to having stolen that car, and here's nope. the other thing. This is another time. Can we not ask if this wasn't Andrew Adams' normal car? And yep. we are to believe that he picked it up somewhere at a, at a parking lot and he drove and did a murder with it and then he drove it somewhere else and they set it on fire. Is there absolutely no one? Is there absolutely no one Who wouldn't have noticed the car at some point? Oh, wait, Beverly. Beverly, who saw the driver, who in no way was Andrew. Yep. It comes back to the, it comes back to Matt Murphy's point. There's a lot of weight with that eyewitness because the only person that we are seeing connected to that car was positively identified. Yep. Which blows up the entire Andrew Adams case, but yet didn't. Yeah, I I still can't fully wrap my brain around it, and I've been knee deep in it for like a week. Yeah, but uh, I I just will never fully. I just can't get away from John and Catherine were found not guilty, but somehow Andrew was found guilty. And to clarify, I didn't want them guilt found guilty and spending years in prison that they didn't need to. That is not what we're saying. What we're saying is, logically, if they are not guilty, so is Andrew. Well, especially when you come to think, think about this. Catherine was charged solely on the testimony of Kevin Thompson. 
What yep. proof was there that she had any sort of conspiracy to have this person murdered? Think about how truly chilling that is. That I could go to the police and say, well, this person said, wanted this person murdered, and then that person gets charged on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, and Andrew and John got charged with murder. And, and, like, and John was just like, I hung out with friends that night. What's happening? Like, it's... It's terrifying. It's, it's absolutely terrifying. terrifying. What? Like, how does Kevin have so much weight in all of this? I assume There's it was an- just like a, you know what? We need it. We need a conclusion here. We need this case solved. And then someone came in and went, yeah, yeah, I think I know who did that. And they went, great, good enough for us. And it's like, but but he's a liar. Like, we've already- well, in a- and again, why are we trusting? Yeah, why are we trusting him over Beverly, who is a completely non-connected, as far as I know, I, I shouldn't yeah. speculate, but I'm assuming isn't connected to other crimes, as we know Kevin was. Sure. Um, who who witnessed part the, a moment in this horrific ordeal? Why is she not being given even a fraction of the weight that they built this entire case against three people? On this one man's testimony with nothing to corroborate it except other testimony from other people who we all know had reason to try and get back at Andrew. Yeah. It's such a failure of justice. It really is. And you know what breaks my heart? And you know that I'm the first person who I'm, I'm, I don't say this lightly. But what breaks my heart is that after he's been let out after 14 years that he should not have been in prison. Because by the way, regardless of his innocence or his guilt, yeah. that innocent, uh, reasonable doubt. There's, yeah. He should not have gone to jail. He should not have been charged. That is a fact. And that system, as I've said on this show, and I'll say it again, everyone needs to remember that system exists to protect us. So yes, are there times where unfortunately killers, not mentioning any names, I don't know, <laughs> um, potentially get off when they shouldn't have because of reasonable doubt? Sure. Absolutely. But that is in place to protect people like Andrew Adams in this situation who never should have done a day of jail time for this crime, regardless of his guilt. Again, that is a system that is important. I, I can't stress that enough. Even if it's not perfect is my point. It exists for a very important reason, sure. which is that no one should be putting be, being put in jail because someone else claims that they did a crime. It's wild. Yep. But the fact that when he got out and he was obviously struggling for a million different reasons, mentally, emotionally, all of the above, the fact that three of his family members had died in that time, and then he's charged for stealing food and clothing. Yep. It's heartbreaking. The fact that it's like, well, he's being given $300 a month. $300 a month? A month? Yeah. This is a man. And by the way, I really do believe, and I don't know a lot about the differences of the system, but this is a case where in the States, I feel like some hotshot lawyer would have taken him on and then he would have ended up getting millions of dollars. Now, I'm not saying that that is better at all. Uh, I'm just merely pointing out that in another place, this person would have... I'm sure, been able to get some sort of financial compensation. Sure. Um, now, there are benefits and, and and cons to that too. Again, I am not suggesting that that is right, the right situation. I'm merely giving context that that what he went through 
through different eyes would be considered something that should be getting financial compensation. Sure. And the fact that then he cashed checks from a stolen checkbook immediately admitted to it. Like, this is a man who is unable to live. Uh, It was also suggested that uh, he found the checkbook. So he didn't actually break into the person's house and steal it. He found it and just to try and, you know, exist. To try and exist. Yeah. And listen, America is also, uh, by the way, the United States, I don't want people to think that I was like saying that that was a good good thing that lawyers here could potentially, you know, whatever. Uh, this is a system that also does not help people who have been through uh, the prison system, people who should not have been through the prison system, who are going to, to jail on charges that were far lower than should even having to do time and how that ruins lives. Um, I'm not, again, it is a flawed system, I think, everywhere. I'm almost certain everywhere. Sure. But to me, in this situation, the fact, again, he's not even stealing money. He's stealing food and clothing. Now, granted, it was a lot of steak. You could argue it's like, well, was it all for him to eat? It doesn't matter if he was getting it to eat or to sell. It just, it's, just, it's just so sad. It's such a sad situation. This person has no social programs to protect him, no family to help him out. What is he supposed to do? This is the same reason why people recommit crimes. They talk about this a yeah. lot in the American system where people are let out. There is absolutely nothing to help rehabilitate them into society. They can't get jobs. They can't get any sort of um, assistance. And so then what? What is your option? If your option is, I don't eat unless I steal it. And I, if I don't eat, I don't live. What are your options? You don't have any. This is why people reoffend. This is why people end up back in jail. And he's a perfect example of somebody who really was, it feels like, a response to how the system completely failed him. Yes. Because like I said, does not matter his innocence or guilt at the end of the day. There was reasonable doubt. The case was not tried properly. Period. Yep. It's really heartbreaking. I, I really do feel for him. And again, um, to, to even deal with what it must feel like to come out of prison after 14 years when you shouldn't have served any time and three of your close family members have died. Your girlfriend who stuck with you the whole time, it doesn't work out with, you're alone and you have nothing, nobody, no way to make money. I just don't even know. If he had stolen money, I wouldn't have necessarily even judged it, but it wasn't even that. It was like, oh, he stole some pants. He stole some meat. Like, my God, it's just, it's so sad. And then again, it's like, And then what's going to happen? This person is going to end up without housing. This person is going to end up in, you know, turning to whatever potential substances. I'm just saying as a general thing, like, and then the system continues, and then the system continues to fail those people. So again, it's like, it just, it's really an example of just the tragedy that is the justice system and the lack of social programs everywhere. Um, what a truly fascinating case. Yeah. Oh, I'm dying to know. What you up to, Kevin Thompson? Dying to know. Yeah. So many questions. But I just, but finding him, I mean, I have no idea. But 
I would love to know what's his life been like since. Yeah. Well, I mean, we know that he's in with the police, so he may have been doing pretty well. That is very true. Also possible that the opposite is true. But I feel like if he had gone to jail for something else, I feel like you probably would have found it. That is true. I'm like that. It's hard to say. I, that's a speculation. Objection, speculation. It was a speculation, but you know, <laughs> I call it out. I at least call it of out. Of course. Even as a oh. child, you would have. <laughs> Objection, speculation. Come on. Would that be you, uh, like our video from... 96, where you're on your knees and you have the shoes under your mm -hmm. knees, so you look I dwarf engulfed. Yeah. 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 Well, listen, Christy Oxborough, thank you for your work. This was truly fascinating. Like I said, one of my favorite ones ever. It really took turns I wasn't expecting. Yeah. This became about the law more than the order. Yeah. And it turns out that's what gets you. Gets me hot. That's nice. Gets me hot. Gets me fired up. I like that. Um, but I thank you so much for your work. This was truly uh, just perplexing, heartbreaking. And and you know what? Also, I love that the one person at the end of this who reminds us of the victim in the in all of this is Andrew Adams. Yep. Reminding us, this wasn't actually even about me. This is about the man who died and his family. And I again, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Heartbreaking. It is also about Jack Royal. Um and, and his family and and all of this, you know, to say, don't fight. Don't get into fist fights, people. Yep. This, all, this all started, this all started yep. because of a fist fight. Yep. Let us try to use our words and our minds and our feet to walk away. Yeah. All of this, and that's, I know that's going to sound like I'm victim blaming. And I, I absolutely, that was not my intention. I understand it sounds that way. I apologize. But... My point just is, is that overall, um, oh, just, it's so tragic from top to bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, now listen, and thank you, dear listeners, for coming on this ride, for listening to me yell for the last half an hour. Really appreciate that. <laughs> really appreciate it. Uh, if you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter at Not Detectives. And if you'd like a little bit more, go over to patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails, where we offer bonus episodes monthly lives, uh, the poll, all kinds of great stuff over there. And the only place, of course, for official True Crime and Cocktails merch is, of course, truecrewmerch.com. So check that out if you haven't already. Christy, do you want to tell us about next week's episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Beverly Lynn Smith. Beverly? That yeah. name has come up again. It what has. a synchronicity. My it's gosh. nice. It is nice. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Piazza. Good night, Piazza. Good night, Piazza.